0: Section 4 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Park. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 6, Edited by Francis Rote Wheeler. Zoology, Chapter 3 The Lower Invertebrates. Part 2. The title Worms, says Professor Thompson, is hardly justifiable except as a convenient name for a shape. The animals, to which the name is applied, form a heterogeneous mob, including about a dozen classes whose relationships are imperfectly known, but the zoological interest of the diverse types of worms is great for amid the diversity we discern affinities with solanterata, echinoderms, anthropodes, mollusks, and vertebrates. Moreover, it is likely that certain worms were the first to abandon the more primitive radial symmetry, to begin moving with one part of the body always in front, to acquire head and sides. And if one end of the body, constantly experienced the first impressions of external objects, it seems plausible that sensitive and nervous cells would be most developed in that much stimulated over educated head region, but a brain arises from the in of ectodermic skin cells, and its beginning in the cerebral ganglion of the simplest worms is thus in part explained. Most of the creatures which fall into this group are of little interest to the general reader. Many of them are parasitic, some like tapeworms, threadworms, flukes, and trichinae, are unpleasantly familiar in this connection. The simpler unsegmented worms are those which most nearly represent the remote ancestors of mollusks and of vertebrates. The higher segmented worms, or annelids, follow more definitely along the line of crustacean and insect evolution. In them may be found an arrangement of organs and plan of bodily construction which serves to explain how the organization of the crustaceans and insects has been developed. The common earthworm is most familiar of the annelids, and its anatomy is much more interesting and complicated than might at first be supposed. The surprise is great that awaits the man who first dissects an earthworm, With proper cleaning and dissection, he will be able to see a complex and wonderful structure, a plan of organization wholly different from that of the higher animals, vertebrates, yet subserving to a large extent the same purposes and beautifully adapted to the needs of the earthworm's life and habitation. To tear up that delicate mechanism on the prongs of a fish hook is likely afterward to appear to him a sort of disregard of proportions. Much like throwing a gold watch at a stray cat. Of the anatomy a detailed account cannot be given here. It must suffice to say that it has a straight elementary canal stretching from the mouth at the front end to near the hinder end of the body, the front end of the canal being provided with a muscular ring and with glands which aided in swallowing and digesting the earth which forms its food. There is a circulatory system consisting of a slender tube along the midline of the back and others along the underside, joined by several cross veins encircling the throat, which by expanding and contracting enable the colorless blood to circulate through the body. It possesses also a nervous system consisting of a cord corresponding to the spinal cord of higher animals, but situated on the underside of the body along the middle line and double instead of single with little knot-like expansions or ganglia at every segment, which correspond to the brain of the higher animals, and with a separate pair of ganglia on the dorsal, upper, side of the head, united with the front pair of ganglia of the underside by a pair of cords encircling the gullet. There are no eyes or other specialized sense organs, or special organs of respiration, Yet the worm is aware of the approach of enemies, or of light and darkness through a general sensitiveness of the skin, and the blood is aerated through the skin. There are, however, the beginnings of organs of excretion, to remove waste matter from the circulation and the reproductive system is quite elaborate, the animal being hermaphrodite, that is, combining both sexes in one individual, but so arranged that the eggs of one earthworm must be fertilized by another. The chief economic importance of earthworms is as principal agents in forming the mantle of humus, or soil, which covers the dry land in all parts of the world, and buries the hard rocks and sterile soil beneath it. Earthworms abound in all parts of the world, they eat their way through the soil and come out at night to the surface, where they forage around for leaves and stray bits of vegetable matter, which they drag to their burrows to be nibbled and swallowed at leisure. Their castings, composed of the earth and comminuted vegetable matter, which they have swallowed and digested, are deposited on the surface, and in the course of their lives they bring up a good deal of the sterile undersoil, mix it thoroughly with particles of vegetation from the surface, and deposit it in their castings. These, accumulating year after year and century after century, form the layer of humus, or topsoil, in which vegetation chiefly thrives and on which the gardener and farmer depend for the successful growth of their crops. Not all the humus is due to earthworms. Insect larvae play some part, and to a large extent it is merely due to natural decay of surface vegetation and its mixture with soil by rain and the dust brought by the winds. But the investigations of Darwin show that the earthworm plays an important part in its formation. Thus, as the tiny coral polyp is ever helping to form the continents on which man can live, and perhaps also to control the climate and moderate the extremes of temperature, so also the earthworm is rendering efficient aid in covering the land with rich and fertile soil, enabling vegetation to flourish and making the earth habitable for the human species. The name mollusks, or soft-bodied animals, covers an immense number and variety of invertebrates. The clams, oysters, and other shellfish, the snails and slugs, the octopus and squid, and many less familiar types. All of them have soft bodies, usually with an external calcareous shell but with no internal skeleton except in the squids and their relatives. They are much more highly organized than the coral or starfish groups. The arrangement of the organs shows a bilateral symmetry, unlike the radial symmetry of coral or starfish. That is to say, the organs and parts of the body are arranged in pairs on each side of the middle line so that there is a front and a hinder end of the body. On the other hand, the body is not divided into successive segments as in the worms, crustaceans and insects. Most of the mollusks are sluggish animals, many of them attached to stones or other objects on the bottom, but the squid and condo are swift and active. The lower surface of the body, says Mayer, consists of a thick muscular foot, used in creeping. In front of the foot is the head, which may have a pair of eyes and tentacles, while the mouth lies on its lower surface and is often provided with numerous horny, rasping teeth. A flat, like fold of the body extends outward from the sides. This fold is called the mantle, and its free edge and upper part secretes the shell, which usually covers the back of the mollusk. The feathery gills arise from the sides and lie in the space between the lower side of the mantle and the side of the body. The intestine is coiled and opens typically at the posterior end of the body, behind the foot. There is a paired digestive gland, or liver, which pours its secretion into the mid-gut. The three-chambered heart lies above the hindgut and pumps blood from the gills to other parts of the body. In addition, it may be noted that the mollusks show well-defined muscles and nervous system. The latter consists of a number of ganglia, knots or nods of grey matter, corresponding in function more or less to the brain of higher animals, connected by cords of nerve fibers which may be said to correspond roughly to the spinal cord in higher animals. From these ganglia, nerves are given off to the various parts of the body. This concentration of the nervous system into a few defined ganglia connected by cords is a great advance upon the condition in the lower invertebrates, where the nerve cells are diffused and scattered over the surface of the body. It makes possible a much more exact and definite correlation of the movements and actions of different parts of the body. It is like the establishment of a central executive bureau to control and order the activities of some great and complex organization. The great majority of mollusks are marine, chiefly shore-living although some are adapted to deep-sea life. But many inhabit freshwater lakes, rivers and streams, and one group, the land snails, has become adapted for terrestrial life, breathing air instead of water. The principal groups of mollusks are 1. The bivalves, or lamellibranchs, comprising clams, oysters, mussels, and other shellfish in which the shell consists of two valves, right and left. 2. Snail shells, or gastropods, including snails, whelks, periwinkles, limpets and others in which there is a single valve, mostly spirally coiled. The symmetry of the animal is obscured in this group by development of one side. In the slugs the shell has degenerated to a small horny scale buried in the body. 3. Squids and cuttlefish, or cephalopods, including also the octopus, nautilus and a host of extinct forms. They are free-swimming active animals with a ring of muscular tentacles around the mouth and part of the foot modified into a funnel, the siphon, through which water can be forcibly expelled from the mantle cavity, driving the animal backward. These are considered the highest development of molluscan life on account of their active habits and more concentrated nervous system. The lamellibranchs feed upon minute organisms, both animal and vegetable which they sift out from the seawater by the aid of gills. The gastropods are more generally carnivorous, feeding upon other mollusks, which they attack by boring a hole in the shell by means of a ribbon-like tongue, the radula, armed with many small, sharp, horny, rasping teeth and then sucking out the juices of their victims. This unique little implement appears to be very efficient for its purpose and is said to be aided by a secretion of sulfuric acid. Other gastropods, such as the periwinkles and the freshwater and land snails, feed upon plants, but all of them possess the radula. The cephalopods also are carnivorous. the octopus lying in wait for unwary fish, or crustaceans, which may come within reach of the long tentacles. The squids capturing their prey by darting rapidly backward, swimming quickly to one side and seizing the victim in their sucker-bearing arms. The mollusca include an immense number and diversity of animals. In the gastropoda alone, there are over 15,000 living species. The lamellibranchs are hardly less numerous. Many of them are edible, a few are important articles of food. The oyster fisheries in the United States alone are estimated to yield $16,600,000 U.S. annually. The soft-shell clam of the North Atlantic, the scallop and the round clam or quahog of the Middle Atlantic states are important articles of commerce, while mussels, whelks, periwinkles and land snails also are largely eaten in Europe. The pearl oysters of the Indian and Pacific Oceans and the freshwater pearl clams of the United States are likewise of importance, not only for the pearls but for the much larger industry in mother-of-pearl obtained from the shells and manufactured into buttons and pearl ornaments. The pearl fisheries in the Persian Gulf alone are said to be worth 2 million US dollars annually. The noxious activities of mollusks are slight. A few species commit depredations upon oyster beds. The damage done by the pterodose to timber under water is more serious. The gruesome tales of attacks upon men by the devilfish or octopus are mostly fanciful. An octopus, if large enough, no doubt could and would attack a man if he came within reach, and once in a while he might catch him at a sufficient disadvantage to overcome and destroy him but chances for such an encounter with such a result are exceedingly small. Members of this group of mollusks do not attain a gigantic size, however. These huge forms are deep water organisms and are very rarely seen by men, although they form an important part of the food of marine animals such as the seals and whales. During the whole recorded geologic time, mollusca have been an important element in the marine fauna. Freshwater mollusks are probably equally ancient, and land mollusks are known to have appeared as far back as the coal era. Their hard, indestructible shells are the most abundant of fossils, often making up the entire mass of limestone strata. Lamellibranchs, gastropods, and cephalopods were all distinct as early as the Cambrian period. Their evolution from a common stock must date far back into the unrecorded beginnings of geologic time. The shell cephalopods related to the modern nautilus attained great size and abundance early in geologic time and were then the dominant type of marine life. In Orthoceras, the shell is sometimes seven feet long, straight instead of coiled as in the nautilus. During the age of reptiles, the cephalopods were again very abundant marine forms, the ammonites, baculites, etc. coiled, partly coiled, or uncoiled, being probably more nearly related to the squid and octopus than to the nautilus. But the majority of fossil shells are related to the modern lamp shells and their allies, the brachiopoda, which, although mollusk-like, are not true mollusks, the plan of organization of the animal being wholly different. The shell may be distinguished by the fact that its valves are dorsal and ventral instead of right and left. With respect to the symmetry of the animal, these brachiopoda are considered a class apart or grouped with bryozoans into the molluscoidea. Their relations are about as close with worms as with mollusks, but not very near to either. The living brachiopods are rare deep water organisms crowded out from shallow water by competition of the more highly organized mollusks. But in early geologic times, they were the common shells of the seashore. With the crustaceans begins the anthropode series of invertebrates, characterized by a segmented body, jointed limbs, and an outside skeleton. The name anthropoda, jointed feet, points to the distinction that separates them from the worms but their plan of organization is evidently derived from that of the segmented worms or annelids. The crustaceans are adapted to aquatic life and breathe by gills. The insects are adapted to terrestrial life and breathe by trachea. The spiders and their allies include both land and aquatic types, differing from either insect or crustacean in their plan of organization. The lobster and crayfish are the most typical crustaceans. The first marine, the second living in fresh water. In comparison with the worms, it is observable that while the body is segmented, the segments are not all alike, but are divided into two regions, the head and thorax, and the abdomen. Likewise, the appendages are not mere bristles as in the worms, but jointed and specialized to serve different purposes. The most anterior ones, antennae and are organs of touch and smell, enabling the lobster to feel his way about. Next comes six pairs which serve chiefly to aid in biting and chewing the food, then the large forceps to seize the prey, then four pairs which are used in walking, and six posterior pairs used mainly for swimming purposes. Altogether, there are nineteen pairs of appendages. The stalked eyes are not classed as appendages, being of different origin. The segments and appendages are enveloped in a tough horny covering, flexible at the joints, hardened elsewhere by lime salts into rigid armor. The internal organs of the lobster are much more elaborate than in the worm, but their general plan is much the same. The nervous system is more concentrated, the muscles are distinct and well developed. The alimentary system consists of first a gizzard with a complex mill for grinding up the food, then a midgut stomach with a large digestive gland which takes the place of liver, pancreas and in part the stomach glands of higher animals. And finally a long straight hindgut which takes but small part in the digestive process. The colorless blood enters the heart from the gills through valves which admit of entrance but not of exit thence it is pumped through well-defined arteries to the tissues of the body from which it returns through ill-defined channels to the gills. The gills are feathery structures of a rather complex nature, presenting a large surface to the current of water which the animal keeps going through them by paddling with part of the fifth pair of appendages. There is also a distinct excretory system, kidney, and the reproductive organs are more elaborated than in the worm, the sexes being separate. It is thus a much higher type of animal than the earthworm, but the plan of organization is the same as it is also in the insect. The mollusk and the vertebrae are organized upon entirely different plans. The lobster occasionally attains great size, and one specimen, 3 feet and 6 inches long and 30 pounds in weight, was captured off the New Jersey coast in March 1897. The snapping prawns are little lobster-like crustaceans of the American coast. The largest are not more than 1 and 3 quarters inches long. One claw is much larger than the other and is provided with a sharp-edged blade which is normally held out at right angles to the claw. At the least alarm, this blade is closed with a sharp snap, reminding one of the explosion of a small torpedo. These little creatures live in crevices of coral reefs, under shells and stones and fairly swarm in sponges, so that when a sponge is lifted from the water, it crackles as if filled with minute firecrackers. The shrimps are similar in many ways, but are free swimmers. A crab is essentially a lobster with its tail turned in under its body. It is the highest of the crustacea and the species is widely distributed and varied, extending from the combative edible or blue crab to the parasitic hermit crab, ranging in size from the tiny oyster crabs which live with the gill cavity of the oyster to the giant spider crab of Japan which attains a span of 12 feet including deep-sea crabs which never come to the surface and the land crabs of the tropics, which rarely enter the water, and which, like the robber crabs, climb trees and live on coconuts. Barnacles, while mollusk-like in appearance, are really crustaceans, which have affixed themselves to rocks or floating objects and are enclosed in a hinged, calcareous shell. As Huxley put it, they are fast to a rock by their heads and kick the food into their mouths. The stalked barnacle, or goose barnacle, was believed by writers of the Middle Ages to undergo a metamorphosis into a species of goose, the barnacle goose, and this transformation was repeatedly asserted in the most positive terms down to the time of Linnaeus or even later. Being encased in a natural armor, says Mayer in Seashore Life, Crustaceans cannot grow at a uniform rate but enlarge suddenly at the periods when the shell is shed. This occurs at fairly regular intervals and the entire shell is shed, even the coverings of the eyes and part of the lining of the stomach being cast off. The creature is then soft and helpless and usually remains hidden in some safe retreat until the body has expended and the new shell hardened. Owing to their hard outer armor and their aquatic life, remains of crustaceans are very common as fossils and there is a fairly complete record of their evolution. The higher types, such as crabs and lobsters, did not appear until after the Coal period. But the more primitive, mostly minute crustaceans, known as ostracods and philopods, have been traced as far back as the Cambrian, nearly to the beginning of recorded geological history. The trilobites, familiar to every geologist, were a primitive group of crustaceans which flourished during the older geologic periods, becoming extinct in the Cold Period. They are very abundant and characteristic fossils and Paleozoic strata. Many of them attained considerable size, the largest up to 2 feet in length. End of section 4 Recording by Lucy Park